right, welcome back to a long overdue episode of uh, Stone Cold Sober. I'm your host, Sean Artis, and it's a very special episode because I have finally found some people to come on in as guest speakers. And I want to introduce them. They are colleagues of mine from the Bachelor of Social Work program at Trent University, situated in Oshawa, Ontario, which I would like to add really quickly that this is the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of Scugog Island First Nation, and this territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. So today we have with us Ashley Sodras, Allison McMahon, Kathy Mangat-Admojo, and Brandy Nye. And our topic for today is the idea that's commonly held in society that decriminalizing drugs will lead to rampant drug use. So I was hoping, Ashley, if you don't mind speaking about maybe the origin and the belief that decriminalizing drugs leads to rampant drug use and where that might come from. Yeah, for sure. So throughout my education in social work, I've completed some research regarding drug use and the impact that it can have on individuals. However, I've also had some experience working with individuals suffering from drug addiction. And, you know, the idea that decriminalizing drugs leads to rampant drug use has come up a lot in conversations with people who use drugs. Some of the conversations that I've had with these individuals have been nothing short but eye-opening. Anyway, let's get back on track. So basically where I think the idea originated from is the data from the Prohibition era. So way back when, I believe it was the 1920s or something like that, the Prohibition era started, right? Mm -hmm. And for those of you that don't know, the Prohibition era meant the buying and selling of alcohol um, made illegal. So anywho, when this started, statistically speaking, the amount of people that drink alcohol drastically decreased. And when the Prohibition era ended in the 1930s or something, of course, the numbers started to increase rather drastically, thus resulting in this view that decriminalizing drugs leads to rampant drug use. However, what people often forgot to take into consideration is the government's inability to accurately calculate the amount of people who were drinking during that time. I mean, people were drinking a lot, probably even more than before, to be honest. People were buying homemade booze, people were smuggling it into the country, hiding it in places you wouldn't even dare to think of. I remember I was watching a show once, and I can't remember what it was called now, but this individual was doing house repairs, right? And he was digging up the foundation, doing a bunch of other stuff to the house, and he actually found bottles of booze that someone had literally put in the concrete foundation of his house. Like, these are the lengths people would go to during that time to hide booze just so they could drink. But honestly, were these people reported in these statistics? Obviously not. The only way they could report people back in those days was based on things like drunken arrest, deaths due to liver failure and liver disease, and alcohol-related hospital admissions. Like, honestly, do you really think that was an accurate representation of who was drinking? Obviously not. Anyway, sorry for the super long story, but yeah, I guess long story short is I think the idea that decriminalizing drugs will lead to rampant drug use was started because of the complete inaccurate statistics from the Prohibition era. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not taking into consideration of like all the hidden underground speakeasies that were taking place um, all over the country, I bet. And uh, I did see some videos on YouTube. I, I know you can find them of people finding a bunch of bottles within their house, <laughs> in, like the weirdest places under floorboards and in their foundation. Um, but that's cool. I, I kind of wanted to get your feeling or maybe the influence pop culture has and, uh, how it has shifted and shaped social, um, I- ideas of, um, 
why we think this way um not just the history but like how has pop culture influenced the idea of decriminalizing drugs leading to drug use or rampant drug use of course so personally i think that pop culture influences many things in our lives and this idea that decriminalizing drugs leads to rampant drug use is no exception i mean let's be real Pop culture is known for using hypersexualized ads that promote partying and living that lavish Hollywood lifestyle. And the reason they do this is because it grabs the attention of many viewers. Like, think of any movie you've ever watched that involved drugs. The first one that comes to my mind is Scarface. You know that movie, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, obviously, Tony Montana uses cocaine, right? Yeah, a little bit. And I think people who watch it, especially teenagers, probably think using cocaine is cool and that it'll make them fit in with their friends. I don't know about you, but when my friends and I first watched Scarface, we literally all wanted to be like him. So essentially what I'm getting at is that things like movies and pop culture in general all have a direct influence on youth. And I think this is why pop culture is so significant because it influences teens and their social interactions. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I just, uh, it makes me think of like the music and some of the language coming out of music. And I'm not saying like one of those old guys, like, oh, don't be listening to this stuff because it's super bad and your kids will do drugs if they listen to Eminem and they'll be Satan worshipers or whatever. Um, but I think that is, that's a good point. Like it does have an effect, maybe. Who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that people have this perception that if drugs are decriminalized, that these youth will act on certain desires and influence from these pop cultures and engage in rampant drug use, um, even if that might not be the case. Exactly. And even if pop culture does result in a small increase in drug use, if we adopt harm reduction models and the country and province takes on a health-oriented approach instead of a criminal one, kind of like how Portugal is operating, then I don't think rampant drug use would even occur. No, that's a good point. And uh, yeah, Portugal is a great example of that. Um, we would see probably benefits of it if we adopted all of that in Canada. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Ashley, for taking the time and switch gears a little bit and ask Allison, um, through an anti-oppressive lens, how do you think diverse groups are impacted by this belief? Okay, well, well, that depends on how long you have, I guess. I'd love to stay all night, but uh, I'm sure everyone wants to hear it. Yeah, I wouldn't want to listen to me all night either. <laughs> all right, uh, I'll try to be quick. Okay, so when I think of how diverse groups are impacted, I automatically think of like marginalized and vulnerable populations. So this could be like indigenous people, African-Americans, or just anyone really from like a low socioeconomic status. So let's take African-Americans, for example. We all know African-Americans have never been treated like fairly, especially when it comes down to, you know, how they're viewed in the eyes of the law. Then when you have people like believe this ridiculous idea that decriminalizing drugs leads to rampant drug use, it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of makes how they're viewed, I guess, worse. Um, yeah, so honestly, let's just think about this for a second. So. Imagine crack gets decriminalized, right? But for some reason, the majority of people believe that like it's only going to lead to rampant drug use. So now, like, what do you think is going to happen, right? Like these people are going to believe this crazy idea, you know, and they're going to want to feel protected, obviously. And then the government's going to bow down and meet their demands, probably by like increasing policing or some bull crap. I mean, we all know how this kind of these kind of issues work. So, you know, who do you think gets impacted? It's not typically the white man, that's for sure. It's gonna be 
marginalized and vulnerable groups such as like, you know, African-Americans or indigenous people. And I guarantee you in this scenario, you will not see like over-policing happening in like rich white neighborhoods. And, uh, and you won't see like white people being stopped while they're driving down the street or walking their dog, but I don't know. What you are going to see is over-policing in like low-income areas. So you'll see African-Americans or indigenous people being stopped you know, while waiting for a bus or while they're walking to work or, you know, like, and what else do you think will happen when they notice that, um, you know, their idea was nothing but exactly that, like a freaking idea. Obviously what's going to happen is police are going to go searching for a reason as to why it's not leading to rampant drug use. And boom, next thing you know, we're, you know, we're back to the era where like police are carting people and we're back to police, like police searching people for no apparent reason. And like, you know what? Like people are eventually going to start getting angry. Like it is what it is. And people are going to start fighting back. And uh, yeah, next thing you know, we're going to have like vulnerable and marginalized people dying and being further oppressed and like all because of what, right? Like police abusing their power. And why do you think this is? I mean, obviously, because of like the class, the classes, the racist, the like hierarchical ideologies that govern this like crazy world we live in. So, I mean, like we see this stuff all the time. Unfortunately, it just it, it's just kind of how the world is. Anyway, I'm sorry for getting a little heated there, but I don't know. For me, it's really frustrating, like how it is always the marginalized and vulnerable populations that get screwed over in these situations. Yeah, no shit. Don't be sorry at all. Um I, uh, you see it now, you see it now with over-policing in, in those communities that have a lower income and, um, they're, they're over-policing people of color and, um, it's, it's tragic. You can, you can see the, like the war on drug that is in America is a war on race. It's a war on class. It's a war on people. Um, so thank you for sharing all of that. I really appreciate it. Kathy, moving on to you quickly, I was hoping um, from your research, do you think that the belief that decriminalizing drugs will lead to rampant drug use, how has this influenced policy programming and funding? Well, Sean, this belief has resulted in the issue being viewed as criminal with a policy framework that is underpinned by our criminal code, resulting in individuals that use drugs being criminalized. This view uses punitive actions, punishing drug users believing that somehow these consequences will motivate the person to stop using drugs. This approach views drug use as a choice, a linear binary issue with, with good people making um, the moral choice to not use drugs on one side and bad people making the immoral choice to use drugs on the other side. This is not okay. This is also reflected in our long standing programming that encourages abstinence and is reluctant to adopt harm reduction approaches. AA is an example of this. They are often recommended by doctors, care professionals, and ordered by the courts as part of sentencing. Right. Um, elaborating on that, what are some of the impacts of viewing this as a criminal issue? Viewing it as a criminal issue, it simplifies a complex biopsychosocial issue and limits policy, programming, and funding responses. The truth is, Sean, this is a health and social justice issue. Currently, 60% of individuals between 15 and 24 years of age are using some type of drug. Our policy and funding practices that treat this as criminal, it drives the drug use underground. 
By decriminalizing drugs, we can reframe this as a health and social justice issue that allows for pre prevention. It allows for honest conversation, education, and a variety of treatments. Also, this allows for more input from individuals using drugs without them fearing punitive criminal actions. Sean, we fund housing and treatment programs that require individuals to demonstrate they're no longer using drugs to be eligible. This decreases access to essential items such as housing and treatment. This only exacerbates the circumstances of these individuals and further distances them from wellness and community connection. We have seen the war on drugs that includes increased policing and tougher criminal penalties. This costs billions of dollars and we have not seen it decrease drug use in Canada. Our research demonstrates that this money could be better spent creating a continuum of care. Can you elaborate on systems and continuum of care? Yes, yes, I can. Creating a continuum of care response that includes abstinence as well as harm reduction approaches approaches meets a person where they are at on that recovery continuum. It acknowledges recovery is not a simple choice and that recovery can involve relapse. There isn't time, Sean, to go into the neurobiology of this issue. And I am not a neurobiologist, but I will say that 83% of individuals with significant drug use have experienced childhood abuse or adverse experiences. When their young developing brains attempt to cope and make sense of this trauma, a survival response actually rewires their brain. Meaning the person using drugs is not simply making a choice, but they are battling these pathways in their brain, as well as trying to cope with trauma. So when we view this as criminal, it misses the mark on the health issue, as well as the social justice issue. Right, so um, quickly, just what are some of the um, barriers Canada has to uh, reconceptualize its uh, response to drug use? John, many Canadians mistakenly understand decriminalizing and legalizing drugs as the same thing. They are not. We recommend following the framework of Portugal that decriminalize the possession of a personal quantity, but maintain trafficking drugs as illegal meaning the person that is caught with a personal quantity is diverted from the court system to the health system and offered a variety of treatments and supports. From this framework, Portugal has experienced a decrease in drug use and criminal activity, as well as increased wellness in individuals using drugs. This has resulted in a substantial decrease of criminal health and social service sector costs. Thanks so much, Kathy. Uh, I just wanted to go over to Brandy now and ask uh, if you know, like, are, are there any types of treatment or intervention programs or prevention programs that actually support the idea that decriminalizing drugs will lead to rampant drug use? You know, Sean, that's a great question. Actually, you know, in my perspective, after a lot of reading and research, I, I don't think there's anything that aligns to that narrative, to be quite frank. I think we have a lot of treatment programs or a lot of prevention type ideas that, um, that, that in fact would be the opposite of that. You know, in fact, like a lot of my colleagues that have said right now and have outlined, uh, we need to abolish those prohibition policies. Um, you know, and we need to stand with people as they're going through their fight. You know, we within society spend millions and millions of dollars a year on the war against drugs, which, you know, it hasn't been really effective at all, in my opinion. 
Um, you know, just imagine for one moment that healing could transpire, how, could transpire if we invested that kind of money into prevention, harm reductions and treatment for people. You know, let's, let's talk about harm reduction a little bit more, um, that, that framework and that model. You know, in practicing harm reduction, we simply are, are give, you know, we're not giving up on people. We're supporting them and we're accepting them. And, you know, we're realizing that there's deeply embedded and enmeshed they're deeply enmeshed, enmeshed into their substances. Um, and within a harm reduction framework, we can support them in a legal way in obtaining their substances versus a criminal way. Um, you know, harm reduction can translate into needle exchange programs, methadone treatment and methadone maintenance, um, safe injection sites, controlled drinking. You know, when we think about this harm reduction model, I want to think about some some pieces that um, some different facilities in Vancouver have brought up. You know, they've um, brought up My Safe Society and the, and the terms of the vending machines that they have implemented. Um, there's strong evidence, you know, that provides provided by these machines that it also supports education, consistent monitoring. Um, there's a control around pharmacologically. Um, you know, and the other part of this harm reduction model and some of the things that Vancouver has has done is that they've supported their substance users in a safe hustle versus a negative hustle. Like what an amazing idea. You know, they're supporting them and giving them jobs to be able to obtain the, the substances that they needed versus going out and criminally and acting to be able to obtain their drugs. And then uh, what are the consequences if there are any of a harm reduction framework? Uh, why is society so against it and up in arms about regarding this if there's evidence to support it? Essentially, you know, in my perspective, I don't think there's any real consequence in harm reduction. It is and can be a really slow process. And, I, and you know, I think that can be part of the, the worries and the consequences that people might put forth. I think another possible consequence or, or uh, framework that people have around harm reduction um, is, that, especially maybe as workers, is that people may or individuals may never reach the end goal of abstinence. And that's, that's a really hard reality for all of us to kind of accept, right? Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's not about us. It's about the, the person who's using in those moments. People, people do not choose to become addicts. They use addiction to feel good about something bad that happens. I really encourage and suggest that we all reflect and think on that. Um, so locking someone up, pursuing criminal justice, is that adding to their feel feelings of badness or um, aiding them in having a better and returning to society, society as a contributing member? Absolutely. No, uh, thank you for that. Uh, using drugs is definitely a symptom of a greater issue. Um, but uh, I, I also agree with your earlier point of um, decriminalizing, having more benefits than negative consequences. Like there's a re reduction in healthcare costs and um, there's more clean syringes on the streets because of it. Um, and there's going to be less bloodborne illnesses like hep C and HIV. But that brings us to the end. And I just wanted to thank all of our guests for this discussion and um, the origin of this idea, how it's viewed through an antioppressive lens, who it's impacting, um, how it influences policy and treatment options based about it. So th thank you again. And we'll see you next time on Stone Cold Sober.